Blog Talk Radio. Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, here at Blog Talk Radio. And, of course, our affiliate stations join us in the second hour, that being our host station, Cyber Station, USA Radio Network, and our affiliate old-fashioned radio stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. You're welcome to join the conversation, 347 327 9849 is the number, 347-327-9849. I'm expecting Dr. Samuel L. Blumenfeld to join us uh, momentarily. I am hoping there has been some miscommunication lately between Sam and myself, but I think he'll be with us. In the second hour, I've got, um, we'll be joined by Valerie Tarico, who is a writer with Alternet Magazine online, very liberal uh, publication. She's written a very provocative article uh, called um, Is Prayer Selfish? It's a religious issue, and I like to delve into matters of faith every so often for sure. And at the bottom of the hour, we'll be joined by Janet Parshall, who, of course, is the host of Janet Parshall's America, nationally syndicated radio program. And she, her new book is called Buyer Beware, Finding Truth in the Marketplace of Ideas. And I believe we are now joined by my good friend, Dr. Samuel L. Blumenfeld, the author of NEA, Trojan Horse in American Education, The Whole Language OBE Fraud. Sam, how are you? Fine, fine. And how are you, uh, Chuck? Very good, Sam. Great to hear you, as always. Well, good, good. I'm glad to be on your show. And uh, I hope that some of your listeners will read my uh, Article today's article uh, on the uh, New American Online, which is about the um, the settlement in Chicago. You know the unionized teachers. Yes, uh, I do. They, they've gotten an excellent uh, settlement. You know they are the highest paid teachers in the country, and only about twenty percent of the kids learn to read in those Chicago yeah. schools. You know, I mean, Sam, it's, it's the... absolutely disgraceful. Not only are they the highest paid, but I believe it's also the shortest school day. Yeah, but now they uh, part of the settlement was to enlarge the day by so many minutes, I think 90 minutes or something like that. Sure. But uh, they have the the worst academic record that, that one could possibly imagine. And they even admitted it on their own website. I mean, I can just quote to you. Um, you know, now this is from the official... Chicago uh, uh, Schools website. It says the composite show that is of the PSAE test at the Prairie State Achievement Exam states that 28.3% of students meeting or exceeding standards down one percentage point oh, from God. 2010 results. 28%? In other words, 28% of students can read efficiently? 28.3% of the students can read. 
Oh, that is a disgrace. That that should be the main headline of this whole story. That's a national scandal. Right. You know, in other words, seventy percent can't. You know, that's yeah, you know, and here they yeah, I mean they're spending I don't know how many thousands of dollars per student in taxpayer money, plus our sons and daughters who go to that school are being well, ripped yeah. off in terms of their ability to think cognitively, their education, and yet they're being passed through a system, and uh, they're graduating high school even without uh, any basic skills, without even knowing how to read a book. That's right. I mean, it's unbelievable, Sam. Yeah, and and only 31% of eighth graders are on track for college readiness in, in the schools of Chicago. That is that miserable. Means, you know, that's incredible. Uh, considering what we're paying for that education. And, and listen, you know, we know how to teach reading. As a matter of fact, you actually used my teaching uh, method, I the alphaphonics, in teaching your daughter to read. Yes, I did, and she's a very good reader now. As a result, loves to read, reads voraciously, and con- comprehends. I mean, now she's reading Shakespeare. She's reading uh, you know, the, the Wordsworth apparently now in school. She goes to a, a, I mean, a very good school now, Boston Latin School. Uh-huh. But uh, she's also uh, learning Latin and she's learning German. And I mean, she's a, she's you know very proficient. And I yeah. think a lot of it has to do with having a basic foundation of phonics, English being a phonetic language. In case people might be curious, and I think Sam, you're a very good friend of someone who is an educator in Chicago. That being Marva Collins, who oh, yes. uh, yeah. who does teach phonetically, and who you know, and who has been uh, 60 Minutes did a piece on Marva Collins. This is pretty well known, and uh, Marva Collins works with some of the toughest students in the toughest neighborhoods. She converted an abandoned supermarket into a school, operating on a shoestring budget, and yet her students are graduating. With uh, with honors, and they're going on to become productive citizens because she uses methodologies such as phonics in her teaching, and plus she also has standards of dress and standards of behavior, and uh, and and other factors that teach young men and women how to conduct themselves in society. Yes, as a matter of fact, Marvel, you know, she left the Chicago school system back in 1975 created her own private school and proved that those kids can learn very well. And 60 Minutes did an excellent story on the graduates of her school and how well they're doing in the uh, job market, you know, in their careers. And it's really amazing to think that all of the children in Chicago could have the same uh, the same kind of careers if only the schools of Chicago knew how to teach reading. Incidentally, uh, you, you say that Hannah is learning German mm-hmm. and Latin. I wish she would also learn Hebrew. Well, she has. Also, she does also study Hebrew, Sam. Uh, she yeah, she had. A, you know, she has. A, even though she does, she no longer goes to private um, uh, Jewish school. She she does keep up with um, with Hebrew tutors, and she's she's fairly proficient at Hebrew. And uh, well, and she's not even someone who particularly likes language, and yet she's very good yeah. at it. Well, the interesting thing is that uh, in Israel, people speak Hebrew. Uh, this was this is an unheard of precedent of an of a so-called dead language being brought right. back to life. 
so that people in Israel speak Hebrew. <laughs> the, they they the do all those time. The I think that I think that there you know it's it there were always Hebrew speakers in Israel, uh, particularly in Jerusalem and in some of the uh, the big cities uh, right, way back right. in the day when when um, when Israel was a a sub province of Syria under the Ottomans. But oh, yeah. uh, but to bring back the point, Sam, you've done a lifelong research on the issue of, of education, particularly reading, which you're an expert on. You have Alpha Phonics, which is a phonics game to teach uh, any age uh, student how to read. You're the author of NEA, Trojan Horse in American Education, The Whole Language, OBE Fraud, and other books and articles. And you simply mention, you simply trace the progression of, um, of how our public education system throughout phonics, and you, you, you look at the stats and you compare that to the decline not only in the ability to read properly, but also the ability to think properly and comprehend and to uh, be able to uh, analyze it critically. And, uh, and you, you make just a very factual, very scientific case with regard to how this happened. And uh, it's based upon the basic premise that's provable and that's simple, that English is a phonetic language. It's not a hieroglyphic language. And that whole language or, or, or um, you know, whatever, look, say, they give it different names every so often. They yeah. try to teach English um, hieroglyphically. In other words, you, 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 take a, you, you look at words as pictures and then you associate it with other images and try to piece together sentences, which of course is how Chinese is taught, but then Chinese has a hieroglyphic alphabet. It doesn't have a phonetic alphabet. It probably should, but it doesn't. And, well, they, uh, do, but, they do use some of the, the some of the characters are used uh, uh, phonetically. In other words, they give hints as to the actual sound, but it's a, it has no, it's nowhere close to our alphabetic system. I think no. that the Japanese use phonics, don't they? They have a, a phonetic uh, system along right. with their regular system. And um, so because uh, learning to read by a purely ideographic hieroglyphic method is just impossible, especially in our modern age with the expansion of vocabulary. You know, you've right. got this. Uh, you've you've got this scientific age vocabulary that has to be, you know, has to be read. And so all of these uh, languages, like Chinese and Japanese, have tried to adapt uh, some kind of phonetics to in their particular methods. But it's awfully difficult to learn, and you have mm -hmm. to know those languages in order to be able to use their method. In other words, you have to know Chinese and. You have to know um, uh, how to speak Japanese in order to be proficient in those in those reading systems. But if you know the English, if you know the, we use the Latin alphabet, of course, which is used in all of the countries in Europe, French, uh, German. Uh, you know, uh, the Russians use the Cyrillic alphabet. But if you know the the alphabet, for example, I learned to read Hebrew without even knowing what the words meant because I was reading it phonetically. You know, Hebrew is also taught phonetically. Right. So, in fact, Hebrew is even more of a purely phonetic language than English even, in that it, it just simply is based on the basic sounds of each of the uh, consonants and, and, uh, and vowels. But, uh, Sam, well, you also draw a very controversial conclusion 
in that you show that the uh, the removal of phonics as the teach, teaching methodology in this country, which you trace back to so-called progressive educator John Dewey, who of course was a big fan of the Soviet Union and who visited when a pilgrimages to Stalin. Uh, you trace it back to that, and, and you show how the introduction of um, look say or guessing or your know, whole language or whatever they call it this year it has resulted in learning disabilities, starting with dyslexia and then on to ADD and other uh, kind of malfunctions in the ability of the mind to uh, function and think cognitively, and that you maintain, correct me if I'm wrong, that these learning disabilities are manufactured as a result of the removal of phonics and other factors, and that uh, and that that has been done deliberately by our educators. Would I be oh, right yeah. about that? Oh, absolutely, and and I show that in in my books. You know, in the uh, NEA uh, Trojan Horse in American Education, I have a I have a chapter on the conspiracy against literacy, and how the uh, educators deliberately decided to dumb down America by changing the way they're taught to read. And, you know, these, these uh, teaching methods also injure the brain. And that's a form of child abuse which is criminal. And this goes on every day in American schools. They, they really do a job on the brain. And incidentally, one of the, <laughs> ironically, you know, John D. Rockefeller uh, Jr., Mm -hmm. uh, donated uh, $3 million to the Lincoln School, which was a new progressive school, using John Dewey's techniques. And he put four of his sons in that school, and all of them came out dyslexic. Um, so, you know, in other uh, words, he actually was a believer in, in this. Yes, he I mean, was he a was... believer in it, but his sons were ruined for the rest of their lives, they consider themselves to be dyslexic and very poor readers. And that included Nelson Rockefeller, David Rockefeller, uh, Winthrop, and Lawrence. All four of them bemoaned the fact that they couldn't read. Uh, and, of course, Nelson, what Nelson Rockefeller used to do is, he, if he had to make a speech, he would discard the written text and speak extemporaneously. Because right. he found reading to be such a tortuous, uh, uh, you know, horrible experience for him. Well, just out of curiosity, Sam, given the fact that the Rockefeller Foundation is so much involved with education and, and paying for various uh, new new methodologies, did, did the younger generation of Rockefellers uh, wise up to this and decide to uh, advocate a return to phonics as a result? Well, that I don't know, but I think that the um, the younger generation, that is the children of the four b sons, the four brothers, right. those children probably went to uh, fancy prep schools. And, and some of those prep schools were progressive and some were more traditional. So I imagine it's a rather mixed bag. It would be interesting to ask these particular uh, young people who are no longer young, they're probably nice, they're probably adults with their own children by now, mm -hmm. that they are just as ignorant as, as most Americans about what goes on in the schools these days when it comes to reading. It's just amazing that parents have been so fooled by the whole word method that some of them will even, if their child is having a, a reading problem, 
they will teach them sight words, which is oh, makes, makes the situation even worse. You know, Sam, I remember when I think a lot of this came in when I was in about fourth grade um, in public schools in Quincy. I remember when they brought in the sight language and the flashcards. And I remember even the teacher was disgusted with it. I mean, the whole thing was just bad news. It really was uh, disruptive, yeah. and, you know, it, it kind of was like uh, we the whole class, it just brought the whole tenor of the experience down because we were no longer, we, we were almost relearning how to read except learning this new way as good. And, uh, you know, we're all taught in a certain way. We're conditioned to not oh, question yes. these things. <clears throat> so you just sort well, of yes. go along with it. It's like it's like to question, for example, it's one of the one of the great quests that I'm on as a radio talk show host is to sort of debug myself from all these things that I was conditioned to accept, uh, you know, as a youth and, and even as an adult. One of the big ones, of course, is the theory of evolution. We could talk about that separately. But getting back to the issue of the Chicago strike uh, here, they've, they've resolved the strike. I assume that the kids are back in school today. This, the other aspect to this, Sam, is a topic that you've written on, and that is the phenomena of public unions. And um, I think that there's been a, a, a quiet rebellion in this country against public unions. And uh, you predicted well, I this hope years so. ago. I hope so. And well, you predicted it years ago. And I remember when I was on my other program with my liberal co-host, I brought it up. Um, during the election of 2010, and I told him, I think this is going to be a big issue in 2012 and uh, 11, and he kind of didn't ever heard of it. He didn't have an opinion about it. But sure enough, it became a big issue in Wisconsin when Governor Scott Walker took on the public unions. And I think when he did that, all governors around the country, even liberal Democratic governors, quietly applauded because the public unions – whether it be teachers' unions or all of the rest of them, they have, they're choking the system. What they're doing is that they are paid by taxpayers. They're involved in politics, which means that they use some of the money that they get from the taxpayers to elect people to support them. They, spend, they, they pour billions of dollars into the Democratic Party overwhelmingly, probably about 98%, and Democratic Party candidates, so they have a special control in the Democratic Party, and they elect people who further their interests. They have collective bargaining rights, which means that they have these secretive contracts where they get all these perks. Usually it's a financial thing, but they also get educational things put in. They've got special liberal you know, ideas put into their contracts, and that uh, these contracts are binding, and uh, it doesn't even matter who's elected. These contracts become the law. So in a sense, it's, it's very undemocratic. We have a government that is basically controlling itself against the rest of us. It's a situation of double jeopardy. And I think that the Wisconsin situation was a wake-up call for the whole country and that Scott Walker, they, they tried to overthrow him, basically, when he took on collective bargaining and he won and he was reelected. In a, in a recall with a larger uh, percentage than he had had, and that the whole thing was held up to public viewing, and it was not pretty. I mean, I think that the whole country is looking at how these unions are choking cities and towns across the country. Um, I know that when I was doing broadcasting in Fitchburg and then again in, in Nashville, New Hampshire, 
those were years when there was elections, and the whole issue was how much the public unions were taking the money out of these small, these small and relatively impoverished cities and, and, and paying themselves these, these pension plans and these health insurance policies and these perks, and, and that well, the yeah. city couldn't afford to do anything else. They were choking these cities. Well, so yes, it's, that, it's bankrupting these cities, as a matter oh, yeah. of fact. But the latest news from Wisconsin is that a judge has annulled all of the new laws that uh, that the governor put in place. Not so all. The battle, the battle I, I think is some of them. Some of them, uh, Sam, not all. Oh, I see. But and, in any case, and the battle will go on indefinitely. But we've got to get rid of government employee unions. That They make absolutely. no sense. And they are simply using their power to to blackmail the public. That's right. Us. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was against it. Uh, this is, you know, this is, they've become a, uh, a powerhouse within the Democratic Party. It's that simple. And they should not be <clears throat> contributing, you know, dues, which is basically monies that are extracted from uh, people's paychecks, and it's under the control of a couple of union bosses, and, yeah, uh, and handing that over to uh, political cronies and hacks. You know, this is if if a, if a government employee wants to give money to a candidate privately, that's fine. But this whole idea of these unions supporting candidates for office—it's a terrible conflict of interest. It should not be allowed. They, they, these these are not you know these jobs don't need to have unions. These are not these aren't sweatshops. I mean, these are good public service jobs. We want to pay people well who are good teachers. Pay them better if they're earned, which is another problem. And get rid of bad teachers, and uh, well, you, you, if it's, you can't, you can't get rid of the bad teachers in Chicago, for example, even though they're being paid seventy-five thousand dollars yeah. a year and in salary, be, and they'll I mean, have that money for the rest of their lives. I mean, in New York City, they have the what's called the rubber room, and yeah. I think there's something like thirty thousand teachers who are not allowed to teach for various reasons, but they can't get rid of them, so they get their full pay, or they get I think eighty percent. For the rest of their lives. That's why the city of New York is going broke. I mean, why should, you know, these are all things that were put in because of their collective bargaining powers. And uh, there's nothing that a mayor can do about it, no matter if the mayor is Democratic or Republican. They have, in other words, the government basically has assumed these incredible powers to take care of itself. And, uh, you know, again, I would just point out these are not sweatshop jobs. These are good jobs. If a teacher or a fireman or a cop or, or someone who's in a union, they have a grievance, they, they can take it up with the local school board or they could take it up with the local city council and maybe those organizations which are elected could do a better job of putting together like a means to hear grievances and investigate them. It's not like they can, you know, it's not like this is, you know, the way it's portrayed is like, oh, they're, 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 what are they going to do? I mean, it's oppressive. That's not really what's going on here. This is nothing but a power grab by left-wing members of the Democratic Party, and it really started to accelerate, I think, during the Jimmy Carter administration when he set up the Department of Education. Uh, right. it, it really wasn't a factor before that. Well, but it was JFK who approved of the um, yeah. unionization of teachers. That started it back in – and Wisconsin was the first state to um, – permit the unionization of teachers and of course now we know what's happened in that state and uh, this is going to be an issue that's 
that the Republicans and conservatives have to confront and yeah. try to educate the public on how they're being taken to the cleaners by these unions. Well, I think this is one of those issues, one of the three issues that I think is going to help Mitt Romney and going to help Republicans this time around. I mean, the first one, of course, was the one articulated by former Governor Francis Sargent here in Massachusetts, the price of hamburger. Yes. You know, when, when, I mean, people, when they go to the polls and they're spending five bucks a gallon for gas, that hurts people. You know, that hurts the bottom line. That weakens the value of your dollar. And people feel insecure. They're unemployed. Or they or they're lower. They have a lousy job now because they had to take something because they lost their good job, and uh, and they're going to say. And since since there are so many people that are undecided, they're going to ask themselves exactly what is Barack Obama, four more years of Obama going to do for me? You know, I really think that that's the number one concern. And while they may not particularly be in love with Mitt Romney, at least they are going to know that there's going to be some kind of an economic change. And that it's probably going to be better. It's not going to be worse. But the second issue is the Scott Walker factor, and that is this idea of the public sector. You know, what, what Mitt Romney recently a accurately referred to as 47% of Americans who are basically either public sector employees at some level or they're getting some kind of public benefit. You know, I mean, sure, I think that Romney was wrong to suggest that all of those people will support Barack Obama. I think a lot of them won't. Uh, you know, oh, you're, some, absolutely, you're, you're right, because you know, are, when, uh, in, in Wisconsin, when, when the teachers were no longer forced to belong to the union, about half of them left the union that's you know, right. voluntarily. That's right. And I think that a lot of people who, get, who you know, d are deserving of public assistance, I mean, it's not a matter of that. You know, our military, for example, our yeah. veterans. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people. I'm not against the idea of people having a good pension and and whatnot. It's just that it's become so excessive that people are voting in their interest, which is to be supportive, to get support by the government and increase support. And it has resulted in a sort of a mentality of uh, victimhood, as Romney said, and dependence. He's also right about pointing out that almost four, about 47 percent of Americans now, and this is something that came out during the Occupy Wall Street movement that most people did not know, but almost four, about 47 percent of Americans pay no federal taxes at all and probably pay no state taxes because most states conform with the federal government. And that's wrong. You know, they don't have any stake. We all benefit. I mean, it's like they say that we're anti-tax, but the fact is that Everyone benefits from being a citizen in this country. We benefit from having an army and a navy and an air force and a marine corps and a coast guard. You know, we benefit from having law and order. We benefit from roads and bridges. We benefit from basic functions of our government, state, federal, and local. We all should be paying some taxes. You know, the the, the well, idea of, course, of paying... every, everybody has to pay sales taxes and all sorts sure. of excise taxes. You look at your phone bill, and half the charges are, you know, different taxes right. of one kind or another. But, uh, but you know, uh, not only has uh, Obama missed the boat when it comes to economics, but look at our foreign policy. I oh, mean, it's look a complete what... disaster. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. Sam, I'm going to have to take a brief break here. Okay. Sam Blumenfeld is my guest, NEA Trojan Horse in American Education, the whole language OBE fraud. We're discussing the issues of the day at this point. You're welcome to join the conversation. 
347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. You can email the program, of course, at chuckmorse4 at gmail.com. You can chat online with me, Chuck Morse, at the Blog Talk Radio site. That's Blog Talk Radio, Chuck Morse Speaks. Please stay tuned. Blumenfeld's my guest, 347-327-9849, if you'd like to join the conversation. Sam, we're talking at this point about the election and the upcoming race, and uh, we're taking a look at um, you know, how things are going. We're on to the issue of foreign policy. Uh, I entirely agree. I, hope, I think that Americans actually are becoming cognizant of the fact that the Obama foreign policy, the Obama doctrine, if you will, it has been a complete abject failure. On the one hand, we have, for example, we could take a quick tour around the world. Uh, you've got Egypt. Barack Obama basically lost Egypt in the same way that Harry Truman lost China. You know, Egypt, he told yeah. he told uh, Mubarak to get out. Right. And now we have the Muslim Brotherhood there. We've got essentially a you know a complete breakdown in 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 law and order there. You've got. Um, you know, the you know, Muslim radicals destroying the Egyptian army infrastructure. I don't know if you heard about this, but in, in the Sinai recently, they blew up several Egyptian airplanes. I mean, they're really, you know, on the march over there. It's very dangerous, for certainly for Israel, but even for their own country. You've got, of course, in Libya, the murder of our ambassador and three yeah. other American personnel. They were dra- was dragged out of the embassy, stripped and dragged through the streets naked. I mean, this is... An absolute disgrace. This is a terrible incident. This is just as bad, in many ways worse, than the hostage crisis in Iran back in on Jimmy Carter's day. I mean, this is, and we know that, uh, for example, the apparently the State Department knew something was coming down the pike several days in advance, and they didn't do anything to help beef up security at American embassies. We have Syria, complete breakdown, you know, a civil war. You've got Iran. Uh, nuclear development at a breakneck speed as they try to get centrifuges going. I mean, there's nothing that's been done. You've got Afghanistan. I I think, Sam, you might recall that uh, in the last years of the Bush administration, you had liberal congressmen clamoring for an increase in American personnel in Afghanistan. They wanted to escalate there. That was the great place to fight the war and all that. So he did. He escalated in Afghanistan. And now we're stuck in a quagmire. It's worse than Vietnam. You know, I mean, there's a, there was an American base in Helmand Province last week that was entered into, and they blew up seven American airplanes on the ground. I mean, the, the, the cost of which was something like, you know, who knows how many billions of dollars uh, wasted, plus two American personnel killed. You yes. know, you've got – I mean, this is uh, – we could take a tour of other countries in the world. America is on the, you know, on the losing end in riots outside of American embassies, and I think something like 20 capitals around the world. 
American prestige has been is not is not is down you know down to the basement. I mean, we're not being taken seriously in, in any country in the world right now. I mean, well, this know, is Obama's when, legacy. When it, when it comes to the um, to the Arab world, the, the Muslim world, they only respect strength. Yes. They own, you know, the strong horse, so to speak. Yes. And America is showing itself to be so weak, particularly, you know, um, when you listen to Obama's speech in Cairo. I mean, all it was is one big apology for America, you yes. know, and, and, and how, how much we have to respect Islam. And, of course, the, when he spoke, those were the days when Mubarak was in power, and at least Mubarak was able to maintain law and order in Egypt. Right. He may have been a dictator, but at least you didn't have riots in the streets. And American tourists could, uh, you know, go no. and wa- look at the pyramids and the Sphinx and not worry about being, you know, killed or anything. And now look at the chaos that you have in Egypt. And you've got this, um, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, President there, right. Morsi, who um, who acts like he's still uh, underground or something like that. He doesn't act like the president of all the Egyptians, but um, he's totally unfit to be the head of that nation, which is the uh, the key Arab nation in in the uh, uh, Middle East. Absolutely, and, Sam. And you know, you talk about Obama's apology position. Um, I brought this up recently on another program, and I was uh, the host, who was very liberal, uh, attacked me for saying, "Well, George Bush apologized for certain situations," and he mentioned a couple of situations where George Bush apologized to a foreign leader. But there's a difference. George Bush apologized for very specific things where we were wrong. You know, they just don't get it. I mean, it's, this country is not perfect. You know, you know that we've made. You make a specific mistake, and you apologize. But Obama's form of apology, his tonality of apology, is not one where he's saying that we did something specifically wrong. It's more that we're just wrong because we exist. We're wrong because we're capitalists. We're wrong because we are successful. You know, we're, we're systemically wrong. And it's, that's an entirely different matter. That's what puts us at a weakness. It shows at its very core a uh, yes. dislike for America, for what we're all about. And yes. if you have a president of the United States taking that kind of tone, especially when he talks in, the, in a foreign capital, it sends, it's like a green light to anti-American forces around the world. And sure enough, they're breaking out now like bed sores. That's right. Now, I did want to ask you about your view on what Israel should do about Iran. You know, it's interesting that there was an interview of Meir Dagan, former head of Mossad. He was on 60 Minutes, and also he was interviewed by New Yorker magazine, and he said this, quote, an Israeli bombing would lead to a regional war, and solve the internal problems of the Islamic Republic of Iran. It would galvanize Iranian society behind the leadership and create unity around the nuclear issue. And it would justify Iran in rebuilding its nuclear project and saying, look, see, we were attacked by the Zionist enemy, and we need to have it. Quote, I... Hmm. 
bombing would be considered an act of war and there would be an unpredictable attack against us, meaning Israel. And right. the Iranians can call on their proxy Hezbollah, which with its rockets can hit practically any target in Israel, unquote. Now, I believe that Iran is provoking Israel to strike first. In other words, the reason why Ahmadinejad keeps talking about how he's going to destroy Israel and all of that, they want to provoke Israel to strike first because they know that with all of their facilities underground, very far buried underground, that there's very little that the uh, Israeli Air Force can do. Uh, you know, they might be able to, to delay the final production of the atomic bomb, but then look at the benefits that Iran would have if, if Israel striked first. I wonder if I, you I, agree yeah, with that. I do agree with that, Sam. I don't think that Israel, even if they could, I don't think they've got the strength alone to, to do any real damage to the Iranian nuclear facilities, which have been in, in being built since they actually, the, the building of the Iranian nukes goes back to the 1970s. I mean, the Shah of Iran started it. It's not new. And yes. it's, uh, you know, it's something that is huge and massive and underground, as you say. I don't, th and it's reinforced by this, apparently by this Canadian company, that went in and reinforced these these in these buildings. I don't think Israel has the military strength. But the strength. Canadians have the closer embassy in Tehran, you know. Right, I'm sure. But yeah. uh, I'm talking about some private company. But I don't think that the Israelis have the military strength to do it alone. The only way it could be done is if it's part of a coalition effort by the Western powers and by the uh, the moderate Muslim states. And I don't see that happening. Um, it's just, uh, it, you know, if the if the moderate Muslim states, maybe it could be the Sunni states, got behind it. But I just don't see them doing it with a, in a coalition with Israel. I mean, it would be sort of like the same coalition that took out, um, that defeated Saddam Hussein under George Bush the first right. when he yeah. uh, when he attacked Kuwait. But yeah. um, I mean, that that would be the only way that something like that could work. And I don't see in today's atmosphere that happening. I don't think Israel really, you know, I think you're right. They're being provoked. And I think that the Israelis have handled this thing as best they can in terms of using intelligence sources inside Iran to engage in various sabotage efforts. I mean, they, they, you might remember the Stutnik uh, worm that somebody yeah, Oh, yes, I wrote about that. I, I wrote a sure. column about that. Somebody inside there put that into one of their computers, and it totally followed up their computer system, probably set them back a couple of years. There was, a, there was an explosion, apparently, at a nuclear plant about a year ago, which was unexplained. And, of course, the Iranians wagged a finger at Israel, which is fine. Uh, but it, it, it damaged, it seriously damaged one of their nuclear facilities. And I think that's really the only way to go. I mean, a combination of Israel and perhaps in alliance with other countries um, – engaging in, in espionage and sabotage inside those uh, facilities, and also more overtly having an American government with a leader who is certainly not going to be Barack Obama, who draws a moral line in the sand and who says, we have the superior system, your system is evil, here's why we are better, we're going to support people in your country who support our point of view. And then do that, you know, through things, very simple things like 
like broadcasting uh, freedom-oriented messages into those countries through uh, through the radio, you know, supporting dissidents, doing things that could actually help to, you know, undermine the radical mullahs. And, yes, and, uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, Obama was silent when yeah. the people were rising up against the uh, the Islamic uh, leadership there. Obama has done nothing. everything. He has done everything in his power to help the radical Muslim leadership in in Iran. He has done everything to help the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, he has at least by passively not doing anything against them. I mean, it's not an open thing, but he has not taken any vigorous actions. He might occasionally throw out a few empty words, but there are things that the West can do. You know, look, Franklin Roosevelt. You and, you and I might criticize. But he took on the Nazis by saying that they would, he would accept nothing short of unconditional surrender um, when he was at the Casablanca Conference. And when he said it, he was imitating a statement that was made by General Ulysses S. Grant during the Civil War, when mm-hmm. Grant said the same thing after the victory at Vicksburg. He said, we're not going to compromise with the Confederacy. We're going to continue until they completely and unconditionally surrender. I think that Ronald Reagan did it when he made his famous evil empire speech. He identified oh, yeah. the nature of the enemy. He said, I want freedom-loving people to stand with us on the side of right. And they did. He had Margaret Thatcher. He had Lech Walesa. He had the Pope. You know, people kind of coalesced, and it led to the collapse of the evil empire. You know, I think that that's the kind of leadership that we have to have now, not Barack Obama, who basically appeases and who basically, you know, looks the other way and he kind of, you know, blames Bush or he, he, who knows what he's doing. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to try to subscribe a sinister agenda there. I know some people do, and they say that he's actually in favor of the Muslim Brotherhood. I'm not going to go that far. But what I do know is that he's, I think it can safely be said that he's been, his leadership has been very weak. He has not really articulated at least if not by action even by words the superiority of our american system and has contrasted that with the oppressive nature of the radical uh, islamists well you know it's it's obvious that he is not very sympathetic toward israel the israelis feel it and and they have no doubt that he's on the other side when it comes to the battle between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and uh, Obama during, uh, has had very strong friendships with Palestinians, uh, particularly, he, as a matter of fact, when he was at Columbia University, Edward Said, you know, was uh, oh, one of yeah. his mentors. And uh, there are pictures of him at banquets with uh, uh, seated at the same table with some notorious uh, uh, Palestinians. So, uh, and when he when he suggested that Israel should start by going back to the 1967 borders, I mean that's impossible because now you have you have large cities which are, have been built, you know, not too far from Jerusalem, which are over, uh, you know, over that border. That border right. is no, no longer exists, you know. And yet, you know, uh, if Israel went back to those 1967 borders, they'd have to remove 300,000 Israelis from their homes. That's right. You know? That's and right look so. what happened in Gaza when they just uh, removed 6,000 Israelis from Gaza. 
And what have they gotten in return? You know, just more They've got rockets. an enemy that's firing thousands of rockets inside of Israel is what they've got. Yeah. No, Sam, I, I totally agree. And the fact that I understand that since George Bush Sr., the policy of our government has been this so-called two-state solution, which, of course, was a, um, a, a, a doctrine that was originally developed, as I'm sure you know, in North Vietnam. Um, do you know about that? No, no. How did that come about? Well, what happened was, yeah, I mean, I'll give you a brief a brief synopsis of it. According to Abu Iyad, who was the number two man in the PLO under Arafat, and who he wrote an autobiography about this that has not been translated into English, and there are other sources as well. There was a delegation of PLO operatives in 1971 who made their, who trekked over to Hanoi to meet with the North Vietnamese and the North Vietnamese, uh, you know, communist uh, theoreticians, because they were like, why is it that we're so hated in the world and you've made such successes with your students, you know, protesting in American cities and you've got all this infrastructure in the Western democracies who are working for you and you've become so popular and it's, it's been such a success. What is it that you're doing that we're not doing? And the uh, the end result was, according to Abu Iyad, that the, the North Vietnamese made two suggestions to the PLO. The first suggestion, and he quotes it in his book, was you have to stop the ugly rhetoric, you know, slaughter the Jews, you know, drive them into the sea. That's not winning you any friends in the world community. Nobody wants to hear that kind of violent rhetoric. Instead, you need to replace that rhetoric with talk about liberation, and occupation and, uh, you know, justice. And if you do that, you'll have the left especially eating out of your hands. The second recommendation made by the North Vietnamese was the so-called two-state solution. They said rather than call for the complete liberation of Palestine, you need to take it in two phases. You take the, the, the first piece as a, uh, you know, and you go to the U.N. and you go to the liberals of the world and say, you have rights as a people and as a nation. You need to create this idea of the Palestinian nationalism, which had not existed up until then, and take whatever you can get in a treaty. And then later on down the road, you can go for the whole piece. You know, after a while. I mean, once they once they slice off half the half the body, the rest of it will fall into your lap at some point. So this yeah, well, was really the. I can yeah. see where that that made exa- you know great sense to them, and that's exactly the path they have followed. But wasn't it the Oslo Agreement that uh, talked about a two-state solution? Well, that came a couple of years later. I mean, I first see. it was the yeah there was the Madrid Agreement, which was which came about in uh, 1979, 1980, and then you had the Oslo Process, which eventually developed in the 1990s. Yeah. But really, the origin of it was right after that that meeting in uh, in Hanoi. You had Arafat invited to the UN. You might remember that when he showed up with a with a gun strapped to his waist, yeah. and uh, and the left was swooning. And then, of course, after that, you had the Zionism is racism declaration at the UN. So they began to win the propaganda war, and they began to do some of these same tactics that um, the North Vietnamese so successfully used in the 1960s to get the uh, left and the student movement in their side, which eventually led to the destruction of South Vietnam. So, you know, that's what that's all about, Sam. And I think that if you take a look even to this day, like, for example, 
on my program, my previous program, we had on a um, a Palestinian authority figure who was doing a uh, kind of a sympathy tour of the United States. He came as a moderate, and uh, you know, to talk to the American people about the Palestinian side of the equation. And he was supposed to, you know, be on kind of a charm tour. That that being Asaf Safia, he's actually a member of the Palestinian Authority, and he came on the program. And his rhetoric was so, you know, unbelievable. I mean, he basically said that Israel would have to recognize the the right of so-called right of return, which could mean over a million Palestinian Arabs moving not into the West Bank but into Israel itself that Jerusalem would have to be divided into two, right along the border of the 1967, which split the city in half, that there would have to be a corridor between the West Bank and Gaza, that there would have to be a complete evacuation of the Jewish population of the West Bank, and then, only then, would the Palestinian Authority begin negotiations with Israel <laughs> to talk about a, you know, to talk well, about a final agreement. Yeah. Totally I mean, it laughable. was, and and this was a moderate Sam. This was yeah. somebody as part, you know, who's part of the, um, you know, the Palestinian Authority government there. So, you know, even if uh, you know, I've said this to liberal uh, commentators who I think have some pro-Israel sentiments, particularly Jewish liberal commentators who talk about the necessity of a two-state solution. And my comment to them is, fine, if the Palestinian Authority is willing to recognize. Israel and recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and not try to evacuate Jews from the West Bank, then maybe there could be a, a two-state solution. But until then, there's nothing to talk about. Well, not only that, but there's no reason why Jews should not be able to live in, in the West Bank, even if it was a, um, a Palestinian state, because then it would have to be a, a democratic government if Jews were permitted to live there, I mean, you know, why shouldn't why shouldn't Jews be allowed uh, be allowed to live? Uh, you know, before the before the, um, the 1948 war, Jews did live in that part of Israel, of course, and you know, in that part of Palestine. And uh, when the, the war ended and uh, there were new borders. Uh, uh, things change, but in any case, uh, why should uh, Palestine be Juden Rhine, so to speak? Of course, of course. You know, it's ridiculous. And Sam, I also, I also bring this up. I mean, I, I, there are Arabs who live in Israel and are citizens of Israel. That's right. So why that's can't, right. Why can't Jews be citizens of a Palestinian state? But the point is that they're, uh, they're it seems to be what seems to be involving. Evolving is not that uh, there will be a Palestinian state because mm -hmm. uh, it's too far gone now. Uh, there are too many Jews living in the West Bank. Right. Uh, over 300,000 now live in the West Bank. Uh, and Arafat has tried to go ar around this whole process by going to the UN and trying to get them oh, to yes. declare Palestine a state. And he's not succeeded. You know, he has not succeeded, right. and uh, he's going to try it again, I believe. But uh, so it, it seems that there's going to have to be some other solution other than two sovereign states. There I agree, be... Sam. I think there's a one state, and that well, there already are two Palestines, that being Jordan and Israel. 
And uh, I think that Israel has to rip off the Band-Aid. It's going to be painful, but at some point they have to declare that. And I would also point out from a religious standpoint, and you know I'm a traditional Jew, that, um, that the land that Israel presently exists in, which is the border of the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, and north from Dan to Beersheba, which is exactly where Israel is today. Uh, the only thing that Israel is, exists in that's extra is that swath of desert south of Beersheba that's known as the Negev. That's, that's just a little piece of land that goes down to Elat. But other than that, Israel today exists exactly in the borders of what the Lord God, King of the Universe, promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I would point out to uh, to Palestinian Arabs, to Muslims, that the Quran endorses this. You know, you see, the thing is that Islam has become so radicalized that they have forgotten the actual, the more moderate part of their own faith. You know, the part of their faith that does believe in God and that does believe in a moral uh, infrastructure, that does believe in Jesus. You know, I mean, Islam has an aspect to it that's actually very much like the other two great monotheistic faiths. And that aspect has in the Quran, and I draw language from this in my book, The Nazi Connection to Islamic Terrorism, that there is a recognition of Israel as a Jewish state, that that basically they say the people of the book, which is their euphemism for the Jews, should come back and repossess their ancient land as promised by Abraham in order to bring about the advent of the Messiah and the return to the, you know, <clears throat> the emergence of the of the golden age. And, of course, Christendom has the same idea, you know, the idea that the Jews should, should once again be in the land that God showed us as a way to bring about the second coming of Jesus. And... Uh, and I think that, you know, from a religious standpoint, I would ask Muslims and I would ask Palestinian Arabs who are Muslims, they should support Israel as a Jewish state. They should be proud to be a part of Israel. It doesn't mean they have to become Jews, even though that's certainly something they might consider. But, be, uh, just, incidentally, you know that there are many Palestinians who are originally Jews who converted to uh, uh, to uh, to Islam yeah. when they were conquered. No question, uh, Sam. That's what, I mean, a lot of the, the a lot studies of Muslims... have been made. Yeah. Studies have been made of the DNA of mm-hmm. various Palestinians uh, <laughs> that prove that many Palestinians are of Jewish origin. Well, we should ask them to come back. Yeah. I mean, I kid, <laughs> I kid, I kid you not. You know, the, is the destiny of Israel, the mission of Israel, from a religious standpoint is to be a Jewish state, to be the land upon which the Jewish people, who, where the covenant has been revealed for these thousands of years, where they return to the land that God showed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's right. the covenant. That's the, that's the uh, purpose of Zionism. That's the purpose of Israel. It's not just a return of the Jewish people. It's also a return of the covenantal people. And I would ask Arabs and Muslims, they should support that. You know they should get behind it. They should they should honor it, even if they are as Muslims they should honor it, and 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 that because that is the basic mission of Israel. That's for the same reason that uh, every nation in the world has some kind of a, uh, I guess you might say a mission statement. There's some kind of a raison d'etre. The United States we have ours. Israel's mission is to be the Jewish homeland. 
for oh, religious absolutely. reasons, not to mention and, the secular reasons. Right. And but I would urge know, Arabs to get behind it. Now, getting back to the American uh, election, yes, uh, it seems that more and more Jews have decided to, not to vote for Obama. Whether oh, I, I, vote, I hope you're right. Uh, whether they'll vote for, uh, you know, uh, Romney yeah. is, is another. Or maybe some of them will stay home. I believe you're right, Sam, and I say this as a someone who attends a very liberal synagogue. And well, I yeah, have even I, heard. To, well, what, what are you finding out among these well, liberals? What I'm finding out is even amongst people who are general, you know, pretty rock rib liberal Democrats who's, who've been voting Democrat like they vote for a, a, a Democrat if it was a yellow dog versus a Republican. You know, the hand would fall off before they'd vote for a Republican. But nevertheless, they are questioning Obama. They're questioning the wisdom of this administration. And I think that if Mitt Romney can peel off even one or two percentage points of the Jewish vote this, in this election, that could put him over the top. Or, as you say, they might stay home. I think that that's something that's in the works. I think he could even peel off more than that, especially with Obama's policies toward Netanyahu and, and just toward Israel in general. So you're probably right. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so, Sam. Well, it wasn't very smart for Obama to say that he couldn't meet with Netanyahu. Yeah. And in well, fact, he was too he had, busy with Beyonce and uh, and 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 and, ja- and Jazzy Jeff and their <laughs> fundraiser in New York City. <laughs> anyway. But I mean, um, uh, as far as the coming election goes, I, I I believe that there are enough Americans who simply can. You know, it was interesting. There was a um, you know, one of these groups that was uh, that was assembled by by P by public television, mm-hmm. uh, a group of undecideds who were undecided before the uh, the uh, Democratic convention, and then they were questioned after the Democratic convention. Would they would they still be undecided, or would they vote for Obama? They were still undecided. Now, these were liberals. These were right. Democrats. You know, right. who were questioned by the by the uh, public radio. So you know, and you know, Sam, the, the uh, I think that Dick Morris has done a pretty good job of the, showing that in in the history of elections, the yeah. undecided votes generally go to the challenger, whether the challenger be a Democrat or a Republican. I mean, it usually breaks about seventy, eighty percent for the challenger. Uh, even going back to the Nixon-McGovern, you know, the people who are undecided, they end up voting for McGovern. <clears throat> and that's that's a dynamic that seems to be at play with undecideds. And this election has a high number of undecideds. Even now, there's about 8 to 10 percent of the yeah. electorate is undecided. So that's good news for, for Romney. Oh, it is. And, and hopefully he'll get their votes. So it's it's going to be a very interesting election. Yes. Of course, uh, we've got the the debates coming up. Yes. And uh, what amazes me is how Obama can just lie his way, you know, and and talk He's as if everything is him. great, you know, that the economy is wonderful and uh, every. Uh, and he's got no policy for the future. All he says is we have to continue to continue build. Continue with me. Uh, trust yeah, me. Hope, yeah, and you know, I mean, and the media is behind him. Because every time Mitt Romney opens his mouth, they're like, oh, look, 
it's all over for Romney, you know, no matter what he says. He, yeah, he, you know, yeah exactly, exactly. Anyway, Sam, we've reached the end of the hour. Um, I want to thank you for joining me. Um, hopefully you'll be back with me Wednesdays uh, at noon um, and okay. uh, as, as I launch the new program. Uh, Sam, right. uh, can you, can you let pe- again, let people know how they can read your article about the Chicago strike? Well, they can read my article by going on the Internet, of course, and uh, going into the, Amer- the New American and then uh, click on Opinion, mm-hmm. and my article will come up. It's, uh, it's the first article on today's posting. So, uh, All right, Sam. Thanks so much for joining me. Sam Blumenfeld will be back in hour number two. We've got Valerie Tarico coming up, who has written an article in Alternet publication called Is Prayer Selfish?, and Janet Parshall will be with us at the bottom of the hour, nationally syndicated radio host, Janet Parshall's America. Her new book is Buyer Beware, Finding Truth in the Marketplace of Ideas. Sam, thanks so much again. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll be back after this message. Friday noon to 2 p.m. You're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. Of course, you can email us and uh, at chuckmorse4 at gmail.com, or you can live chat with us on Blog Talk Radio. I'd like to welcome aboard our affiliate station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network, and, of course, we're joined by uh, our guest, Valerie Tarico. She's an author. She's a, she's a writer, a, blo- a blogger, a columnist with Alternet, with Huffington Post. Valerie, thanks for joining us this afternoon. It's nice to be with you. Valerie, you've written an interesting and provocative article where you ask a very seminal question, which is, is prayer selfish? Please elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> It is a provocative question, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And obviously there are prayers that are not selfish, prayers that have to do with people asking um, that uh, for world peace, asking that, that um, they themselves be um, more humble. But, but, the, but there's an awful lot of prayer that's a, what I would call gimme prayers. It's about kind of trying to get whatever powers that be to kind of manipulate the laws of physics and chemistry and biology um, to pull some favor um, and um, 
give you some advantage. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I guess on the surface, I, I don't know if it's defying the laws of chemistry. I think it is more to do with just simply that one is striving to do better in their life and do better for themselves and their family, and they're looking for, uh, I don't know if I'd say divine intervention, but certainly insight in terms of how to uh, improve this, improve their lot. Well, I think a lot of people are looking for divine intervention. Um, that's, you know, we um, are social animals and we think in terms of social relationships. The um, psychology of a relationship with God is very much modeled on our relationships with powerful people. And mm-hmm. part of what we want is um, them to do us favors. Or at least, I'm, I'm not sure, it's, well, I mean, I know what you mean, like a favor, but I think it has more to do with, um, I mean, maybe I'm talking in the more conventional sense, but uh, uh, an idea that um, we want to help ourselves to to improve, and we want just uh, some guidance, some insight, and whether one believe in, believes in, in God or not, in a sense, I think such prayers actually are beneficial. <clears throat> they do lead to some, at least they force the the person that's engaging them to clarify their thinking, and wonder, gee, what would God do? What would Jesus do? You know, I mean. Uh, so I, I think it's beneficial to do that. There are absolutely prayers that are beneficial that are about kind of asking people, asking ourselves to focus in on what is it that we're trying to accomplish? What is it um, that is going to help us get there? Um, what are our deepest values and how can we live in alignment with those values? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, actually a beautiful website called worldprayers.org that um, gathers together some of the most thoughtful, inspiring prayers from a variety of religious traditions. Um, It includes prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of invocation, of adoration, and and many of those prayers are exactly what you're talking about. Right, right. uh, Do you believe that it's appropriate for our leaders, uh, our secular leaders, that is, to pray for this country and to pray for, you know, our own um, future and, and our role in the world? You know, um, I, I have a boat, and I drive past a boat repair shop that um, last year had a sign up that said, Ask Anything in Prayer Believing. Um, and I, I thought to myself, if I take my, my boat into the shop, I, I don't want somebody praying over it. I want somebody who has the skill set and the tools to actually make the repair. And I feel like that about our our leaders, too. Well, I mean, I, I think that, as you say, I mean, there are things in in our scientific world that, that are not, that, that prayer is not needed. You know, we, uh, you know, there are, you know, technical matters that we can handle, but that doesn't mean that one can't pray for, insights and, and and they can't pray for the country in general you know as in, in a spiritual sense i mean of course we you know when we do things like um you know send people off to war or when we do things like um you know take a look at um you know how I mean, because our leaders obviously are in positions where they can do things that affect our lives and our futures you know we pray that they have wisdom i mean i think that all presidents certainly have publicly prayed even including president obama um, no? All presidents do publicly pray, and part of that is that um, 
this is a predominantly Christian country, something like 85% of people in this country self-identify as Christian. Most mm-hmm. people um, ascribe to some form of theism. And so there is political advantage in being seen as somebody who is um, devout. Uh, even many people who are not believers tend to think that religion um, is uh, contributes to morality, if not at least, if not being the basis for morality. We now know um, from studies of child development, from studies of anthropology, from a variety of sources that um, that um, ethics, that morality, is kind of baked into our species for some very important reasons, and that. Um, and that it doesn't come from religion, but most people don't know that. And so having a president who comes across as a r- devout um, is um, likely to inspire trust. I mean, it's certainly a card that Mitt Romney is playing at this point. Right, but I think that, I mean, in a sense what you're suggesting is that maybe Barack Obama, when he prays publicly, and he does, is not really sincere. He's just doing it for political reasons. Um and now, well, I think course, I think that everything Barack Obama does publicly is subjected to some political calculus. Um, does that mean that his prayers are not sincere? Does that mean he is not a devout believer? I actually think the guy is a believing Christian, mm-hmm. um, and 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 that he probably prays over the things that are important to him because he thinks that there is value in that. Yeah, and, and I agree with you, by the way. I think that he, uh, when he says, God bless America, he is praying that God bless America. You know, it's yeah. not just, uh, I mean, I, I've heard some people in this program say, oh, he just says that because that's what leaders have to do. Um, but I think that he is praying for this country, and he's praying publicly. I think that you're right. It is This is a predominantly Christian country. Um, and when I say Christian, I mean with a small c. It's not a denomination of Christianity. It's it's not even necessarily a Jesus-based Christianity. It's just a uh, an understanding that there's a higher authority. There's a that there was a creator of the universe, and that that creator gave uh, gave the world uh, moral and ethical codes. Um, I think I, I think, think for about eighty-five percent of the people in this country, it is a explicit Christianity. It's a Jesus-based Christianity. It's right. not just some form of 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 looser theism. Well, that, I think you're right in that most Americans are Christians with a capital C. But nevertheless, the American ethos, going back to the founders, you know, it's not that it didn't include Jesus, but it looked to the belief of of Jesus and and who and, and who Jesus is as more of a private matter. While at the same time, I think it did embrace the the moral and ethical code of Sinai as being divine. Um, and that uh, I think you, uh, you know, on the one hand, do you, do, whoa, whoa, do you actually know what the moral and ethical code of Sinai is? Well, a, as a Jew, I look to rabbis to help me with that. I'm not an absolute expert on, on it, but I know enough about it to know that um, it, it's a, uh, it's a, it's basically a series of uh, of commandments and and uh, and laws and ordinances which tell individuals and nations how to react. How to, in a sense, interact with each other, and it also actually, what actually, is the proper I would, way of I would, I would actually um, challenge you on that one. Um, okay. I, there is this Christian revisionism in um, that is popular today that talks about the the uh, 
legal codes of this country being based on biblical principles or um, Abrahamic principles. And if yet, but if you look at the Bible, at the Ten Commandments, for example, actually there are two sets of Ten Commandments. They're kind of repeated in several places in a slightly different form. But the, if you look at the Sinai story, actually the set of Ten Commandments that Moses brings down from Sinai are not the ones that are familiar to people. They are the ones that have to do with um, with not boiling a kid in its mother's milk. They are basically a, a set of 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 practices that have very specifically to do with the early Hebrew religion and um, with the parts, some of the parts that have been carried through today into modern Judaism. If you look at the other set of Ten Commandments that are actually not associated with the Sinai story, they are a combination of explicitly religious edicts and then um, a set of um, an additional set of what I would describe as universal ethical principles. Um, mm-hmm. So you know things like thou shalt not mother or, or thou shalt not murder, for example, right. exists in every code across the country or across the world. I'm sorry, right. in all wisdom traditions, um, um, and and so so kind of I, I guess I just want to challenge that misperception that um, the Ten Commandments either are a particularly useful basis for a civic code, and secondly that they are the basis for our legal system and set of ethics in this country. Well, my guest is Valerie Tarico, and Valerie, you write often mm-hmm. on religion and uh, maintain a blog that um, that deals with religious questions. And this is really getting interesting here. Um, first of all, the um, the specific religious uh, codes, like like kosher laws and things like that. Those, it's quite clear that um, the Bible says, or the Old Testament, what we call the Torah, says that those specific laws only apply to the Jewish people, only to the children of Israel, and only when those children of Israel are in the land that God shows the patriarchs, and nowhere else. I mean, it's not; those are not universal. You're quite right. That's not something that um, anyone, I don't think, in, in, in American history has suggested that the United States, you know, embrace. I mean, I know that here in Massachusetts we have some what they call blue laws, which are based upon that. But but the whole idea of America embracing literal, you know, biblical laws um, that that only really apply to the children of Israel, I think that's something that went by the wayside in the colonial times. I mean, here in, especially here in my own state of Massachusetts. But the universal codes that particularly those that are in the book of Leviticus, those apply to all mankind. You know, those are moral codes that talk about things like the rules of the rules of engagement when it comes to war. You know, how you treat employees, labor laws come from that. Um, you know, how, how you treat how you treat slaves. Right. Which, which was the beginning of man developing a concept for how to treat employees. It didn't endorse slavery. What it did was take a look at society at the time, which was highly collectivized in which there was no concept of individual identity or rights, where, where, where entire nations were in states of slavery. And it began man on the process of treating people properly so that the slave, which was part of the human condition back then, suddenly had rights. In other words, a slave would have a day of rest on the Sabbath. The slave would get certain pay. The slave would get certain the expectations of, no, of of non-abuse. And, and the Torah lays out other laws. 
And what that did was it began the process in motion of eventually a respect for the individual as created in the image of God. So it began the process of rejecting slavery. And I think that in the 20th century, we've seen slavery return as part of what is an anti-religious movement, which was a movement to try to throw out the Torah, throw out God, and that was both the communist and the Nazi movement, both of which were viewed as progressive in the 20th century. Well, I, you know, I absolutely agree with you that um, that that if you look at um, the Bible the, the, and the and the Torah within its cultural context, that there are many ways in which it is an attempt to lay down rules that are compassionate, that are fair, that allow people to live in moral community with each other, mm-hmm. in an Iron Age patriarchal tribal setting. Right. Um, and that um, what um, happens, and, and that what has happened since is kind of, and, and what actually happens across the trajectory of both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible is that there is um, an evolution of consciousness and of morality. Um, so that what, it, it, it's the record of our ancestors struggling with some very important questions. How do um, what what is good? What is absolute goodness? Meaning, you know, kind of in the form of what we call God. Um, and how should you know what is? How do we live in moral community with each other? It's an attempt to answer right. those questions, and the answer changes over time. So even within the context of the of um, the Hebrew Bible, for example, you see um, there are vestiges there. Um, of what 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 would appear to have been um, orthodox child sacrifice during the very very early stages of the Hebrew religion, that it was a kind of not just a, a fringe practice, but an actual orthodox practice. Um, theologian Tom Stark, in his book The Human Faces of God, does an excellent job of kind of describing how um, scholars tease out this kind of stuff. Um, but but then what you have is the later writers actually working to um, reinterpret that and to explain it it it, it has become morally um un- uncomfortable and then morally untenable and morally unacceptable so that there is that kind of evolution just like what happened with slavery um and well, 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 let me comment on that briefly if i may uh, valerie first of all the torah abolishes child sacrifice it abolishes all human sacrifice in, at sinai I mean, the only example before Sinai where the children of Israel were involved in even a, a hint of that was when the what, what's called in, in Judaism the Akedah, which was when Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. Well, actually, and, if you um, Google um, Jephthah's daughter, there is another story there, but most significantly, yeah, but that wasn't again, about children come, of Israel. That that was come, a, that was the uh, Midianites. I'm talking here about no, at no, no. Jephthah's, Jephthah, Jephthah is an Israeli. Oh yes, you're right. He, he, and, but but he was severely reprimanded and viewed as a very flawed person for that. That was a complete abrogation of the, of the Sinaitic covenant. I'm not saying I, I that. Wouldn't, go, go back. Well, wait, you wait, go wait. Take I, I wouldn't say that, that it didn't go on. But the point is that the the Bible clearly at Sinai banded, and in fact, that's one of the things that. Uh, not only separated the children of Israel from the other nations which were regularly engaging in human sacrifice, particularly of children, which particularly threw the bodies of children into the fires of Moloch, but it also began, again, an example of beginning mankind on the trajectory of 
respect for life, not sacrificing human beings. In other words, that every individual, and this goes back to Genesis, the very, one of the very first lines, is that every individual is created, in, and men and women, it says, not just men, is created in the image of God, and that, that is a foundation. You know, you talk about, like, the founda- founding principles of the American Republic. I think that the founders who wrote the, um, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, they were very aware of that concept when they put in the language that all men are created equal. This idea that we are all, there there is something that equally is divine in that we're created in the image of God that makes every single human being unique and and sacred. And that that began man, not just the Israelites, but the Israelites in a sense as as serving in the role of, of, um, of a priestly caste for the rest of humanity toward this idea that, um, the human being has inherent rights and that every human being every is sacred. Every human being has a right to be respected. So I think that the Bible, you know, clearly gets away from human sacrifice. Again, you're right to say that there were, you know, situations like Jephthah, who was clearly condemned by the rabbis even in his day, in the day of the judges, for, for doing that. It was seen as a terrible abrogation. But not only are those exceptions and violations of the biblical code – but that they were not the norm. I mean, this was why this was written about. It was just uh, seen as a terrible event in in, that, in those days, a, a, a sin, actually. I think that if you go back and look at the record, you would find that the, that Jephthah is not condemned in the actual story. He is, as you said, condemned. That that what happens is that by the by the end of the Hebrew scripture. The, the notion of human sacrifice is absolutely convinced, condemned, although, interestingly, it kind of rears back up in a symbolic way in the Jesus story. Um, but, but, that, um, but that there is this clear moral progression um, in, in the Hebrew Scripture, and, um, and, and scholars who kind of tease apart those nuances um, kind of look and say, you know, when, when we get – we get forbidden to do things that have been that that were we only get forbidden to do things that we're tempted to do right all the prohibitions against don't covet your neighbor's wife don't steal your neighbor's right. stuff if there was no temptation to do that those prohibitions wouldn't be there right of those course. are some of the it's universal ethical principles nature, for sure so, and and the same is true of those prohibitions against uh child sacrifice and 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 kind of scholars who kind of do a historical analysis of the trajectory of the Torah and then of the judges as you said would suggest that that part of that trajectory was evolving even during the time that the pieces of the Torah were coming into existence during the time that the sub the later texts that make up the Hebrew Bible were coming into existence I would also say that that the Hebrew Bible is not the starting point for that sense of human you know kind of compassion and humanization either it exists in in other religious traditions and the um the 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 Hebrew Bible itself incorporates um chunks from what was the code of Hammurabi which is an earlier text from the same region so there was this continuous kind of borrowing and improving process that was going on throughout right. the time that the bible was being written and assembled well valley first of all i would suggest that the code of hammurabi actually reinforces the validity of the bible because you're right it does reflect many of the ideas in there my contention is that the uh, the torah did clearly state that it was opposed to human sacrifice at the time of sinai 
which was the revelation at Sinai by God, and that there was an evolution away from it for sure as the ancient Israelites struggled with their own conscience, with their own uh, attempt to become a a holy sect and, and to try to live the good life, and that there were many lapses. And in that sense, is the same evolution going on today. It's a moral evolution. But that the Bible was clear, the Torah was clear in the book of um, Exodus at the time of the revelation, that human sacrifice was forbidden and that was wrong. I mean, there's many, many points. It isn't something that that was teased together or was evolved. It can be quoted chapter and verse. Now, I'm not a rabbi, so I can't call it up right this second, but I've studied it enough to, to be able to say that with a good deal of certainty. Uh, yeah. Uh, again, the book I would recommend for the actual sequencing of that is um, The Human Faces of God by Tom Stark, who is a, actually a, Christ, a Christian theologian. Yep. I'll look uh, into it, and I, I, I'd have him on. I mean, I, again, I'm not going to comment on the Christian idea of the human sacrifice being that of Jesus, because that's sort of outside of my own ken. But as a Jew, I can look at the fact that um, the Bible, which I do view as divine, banned these practices, and that's something that uh, man has ever since then, I think, evolved in in a moral sense in terms of their ability to uh, to look to that landmark and judge their own lives, not just as individuals, but as societies and as nations, and to evolve. I think that in the case of human sacrifice and the killing of infants and the killing of children, there has been a lot of evolution. I mean, obviously. I mean, most nations in the world now understand that this was that this is wrong and that it has to be banned. I don't think that that's something that necessarily is just a hidebound thing. I think it's something that is, uh, you know, learned from uh, exposure to uh, received wisdom. Well, received wisdom and experience. Right, and trial and, and error and, over many millennia. Absolutely. And, no, I agree and, with and that, too. And the fact that we have built into our bodies the kind of basics that allow us to be moral animals. We, children come into this world um, and they develop emotions like empathy and shame and guilt at approximately the same in the same developmental sequence, regardless of what re, re, religious or cultural tradition they are brought up in, or whether they are brought up in no religious tradition at all. Those things are a part of what it the very fabric of the human body and the human psyche. And um, religious traditions, you know, differ from each other. When you kind of think about empathy or compassion, you know, the, the, the perhaps the most common interpretation of that is some form of the golden rule. Um, do unto others. Right, the Aristotelian idea. Sure. You know, so the idea that basically we use our own experience, our own ability, and, and what now kind of what we think of as mirror neurons, the ability to kind of um, actually internally experience another person's position or their their pain or their joy, um, and and religious traditions, you know, of various kinds apply that golden rule. Um, to different people for some sometimes it when it's expressed it's you know due unto other ma- males of your own religious tradition as you would want done unto you and sometimes like in the Jain tradition it is due unto even the smallest sentient creature as sure. you would have done unto you and again i think that as um, our societies grow more complex more multicultural we kind of bump into each other more there's you know um that part that part of what we wrestle with is the question of 
who counts? Where is the boundary around the golden rule? And um, and that I think one of the positive aspects of human cultural evolution is that increasingly um, um, the, that complexity and interdependence forces us to look at those traditional boundaries we've put around who counts and think about the fact that maybe there are people on the outside who also count. You know, maybe Well Valerie, we're 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 reaching toward the end of the half hour segment, but um and I really am enjoying this conversation. I'd like to do it again sometime. Um, Absolutely. I think that uh, you you you're looking at there's often I think what is a misconception which is the that there's a complete division between science and faith. Uh, and you're looking at the human being strictly as a scientific animal here when you say that um, the ideas of morality and ethics are hidebound into the person as if it's some kind of a trigger of neurons or some kind of a chemical reaction. I would argue that, that you can look at it that scientifically and accurately, but at the same time, it's also an issue of the spirit. It's an issue of the uh, the soul. Uh, in entering into the human being when they're born or whenever it enters. And uh, and that it's that that gives the child an understanding, an inherent and basic understanding of what is right and wrong. And I think you're right to say that children have that, but that it's a sense that has to be then nurtured by, by knowledge, by reason, by faith, um, and, and taught in, in a sense and fostered and developed because if it isn't, then it doesn't it doesn't get fostered and developed on its own. I mean, it's it, there are values that are taught, and those values are you know can be looked at objectively, but they do differ depending upon the society. You're quite right about that. Um, but but I think that we can't discount the um, first of all the inherent spiritual aspect to that, and secondly the fact that um, as the child matures into a functioning cognitive individual. The, the 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 awareness that there is received wisdom, whether one believes it's divine or not, I happen to believe it's divine, that that does teach one the the good life, you know what what is right and wrong, um, and that that wisdom exists outside of human manipulation. In other words, it's something that is is something inherent. It's something that um, that that Thomas Jefferson described as self-evident. And that it can't be manipulated by governments. It can't be manipulated by it, people who claim to be enlightened. It's something that people understand, and that's the that's the very source of what what I think the Bible teaches. Anyway, unfortunately, Valerie, we're at the end of the show, uh, this segment. Can you let people know where where they can look at your excellent articles and your blog? Well, my book is called Trusting Doubt. If you Google my name and the book online, you'll find it. And my my articles can be found at a variety of places, but I have an archive at a waypoint. That's a w a y p o i n t dot wordpress dot com. And um, so anybody who's interested in reading more can can go there and 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 kind of find the whole collection. Excellent, Valerie Tarico. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. We'll be back.
And we are back. We're expecting Janet Parshall, hopefully momentarily, the author of Buyer Beware, Finding Truth in the Marketplace of Ideas. Janet Parshall is the host of Janet Parshall's America, nationally syndicated on the Salem Radio Network. Um, we'll, we'll see if she pops up soon on the board. Um, this is, uh, for some reason today, I'm, I'm just into this uh, talk of faith. It's something that I've always, of course, been fascinated with, and I, I think it's one of those great um, and most uh, most valid topics for talk radio because it's a valid topic for human life. You're welcome to join the conversation at 347-327-9849-347-327-9849, or you can email me, Chuck Morse, at number 4 at gmail.com, uh, and I shall read your email on the air. Um, while we wait for um, uh, Ms. Parshall to join us, uh, let's take a brief look at the news. There was an explosion in a kosher store in Paris today that injured four people. That's a very ominous development. Uh, uh, there was uh, they, they don't know who's behind that, whether it might have been um, radical Islamists or local anti-Semites. I don't know. But we do know that a French magazine is running very insulting drawings of Mohammed naked, I don't think that helps. <laughs> That's not exactly, you know, a good piece of news, uh, and it is insulting. And I understand that uh, Muslims are offended by that. I can appreciate that. Um, I suppose that it, it gets into the question of um, of free speech versus um, respect for faith. I don't like to see um, Islam insulted in that way. Uh, I don't think that it's actually good a good idea. I would hope that... Um, Generally, magazines and publications use some reasonable prudence when it comes to doing that without having the government tell them they have to. I wouldn't want to see insulting images of Jesus drawn either. Um, you know, but, um, you know, at the same time, you, that, that is balanced by the fact that um, in the Western democracies, and certainly France is, is a part of the Western democracies, uh, media does have a right and a certain amount of leeway when it comes to uh, to engaging in, in speech that can at times be offensive and unpopular. Uh, with regard to the, um, the film that uh, is being blamed for the outbreak in Libya, which apparently it was not really the whole story. Apparently this had been planned several days in advance. But nevertheless, the, the this film, which had been out on... Uh, YouTube for some months in, in advance offended a lot of people, but what's not understood, I would argue, by uh, by much of the Islamic and Arab world, is that uh, things like this, whether it be an insulting movie put on YouTube or whether it be an insulting cartoon run in a newspaper, that these are not expressions of the government; these are expressions of private individuals and that those private individuals are responsible for the content of those films and those cartoons. And, um, you know, I don't wish any, any ill will toward them. Uh, if, if they're in any way attacked or molested, that, that of course, is a, is a violation of, uh, of, law, of laws, it's, you know, it, it both domestically and even internationally, if it's a, uh, an attack by a, a foreign group. 
but at the same time, they have a right to do it in free countries, and um, and I support that right. Um, and I think that um, when you have a situation where um, you know, Arab and Muslim uh, agitators are, are cranking up a mob and then they attack American embassies, and in the case of Libya, very tragically, they murder our ambassador and drag his body through the streets naked, and apparently sodomize him. I mean, I hate to think about what what that was about. Then, then that of course is is a bizarre overreaction to something that had was not the fault of the United States, had nothing to do with the United States. It had to do with the the idiots who made that movie, who have a right to make it, and I defend that right, even though I find it offensive as well, and I sympathize with those who are offended by it. I think that I hope anyway that our government learned its lesson back in the 1980s, I think it was, or the 1990s, when the um, the Department of Arts and Humanities gave a grant to an artist to put a crucifix in a jar of urine um, called the Piss Christ. That was deeply offensive, but what made it worse was that the artist got a government grant, which by any definition would mean that it had the tacit, if not the actual support of the government. And and I suppose you could have made the case that America bore some responsibility for that. Um, there was the other case of a of a of a piece of art, so called, which which was cow dung stuck to a canvas in the shape of the Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus. Very offensive, very ugly. But what made it a bigger problem was the fact that the artist had that displayed in a museum that apparently was run by the city of New York, I believe, or at least was supported by public funds. That is what would, in a sense, constitute an endorsement of that art by a government, in that case the city of New York, which was why the mayor at the time, Rudolph Giuliani, had ordered it that it be taken down, and it was. Um, so I think that with regard to the Islamic uh, movie, it was not in any way endorsed by the American government. It was not made by anyone in the U.S. government. It was made by private people. We don't even know who made it. It doesn't matter. The fact is that they were making it on their own and that they bear responsibility for the content of that stupid and very nasty film. And again, I don't blame Muslims for being offended by it. It is offensive. But don't blame the United States. Don't blame our government. Don't kill our ambassador. Don't riot at our embassies. Our government had nothing to do with it. The American people do not support it. Um, but at the same time, the American people, in the broad sense, support freedom of speech. And we support the right of people to engage in freedom of speech without feeling that their their lives are going to be threatened and without feeling that they're going to be at risk. To do otherwise, I think, runs very much against the grain of, uh, of American understanding. We generally do not try to censor speech. Um, I suppose that constitutionally speaking, the difference is uh, what uh, a maxim that was originally brought up by a Supreme Court Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes when he said that free speech stops at yelling fire in a crowded theater. 
Um, I don't think making a movie about Muhammad is yelling fire at a crowded theater. Uh, that means literally doing something that actually directly threatens people's life at that moment in that place. If you yell fire at a crowded theater, you're gonna that will the reaction will be that people will try to get out of that theater and some people might die. If you insult a religion, the reaction does not necessarily mean that people are going to start killing Americans. And if they are, we shouldn't coat out of that. You know, that's a, you know that that's not how we do things. I mean, someone people insult Christianity every day of the week, and you don't see uh, you know Christians going out and um, and killing you know people at their homes because of it. It just doesn't happen. It's not really what um, what we do in, in the Western democracies. So I don't think that um, drawing a nasty cartoon depicting the Prophet Muhammad is the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater or calling for a specific person to be assassinated or whatnot. Those are provocations, and there are, there are laws against that and should be. Anyway, you're welcome to join the conversation, 347 327 9849 is the number 347 327 9849. There's apparently a problem getting through to Janet Parshall. Um, I hope to get that fixed uh, in in the coming uh, <laughs> next couple of programs. Um, my guest uh, in the first half hour was Valerie Tarico. She's a very liberal writer on religion, writes for Alternet Magazine. Interesting talk, I thought. I'd like to have her back. What else is going on in the news? Um, we have the ongoing um, the YouTube releases from each of the presidential candidates. First, you had the release of um, Mitt Romney speaking at a, at a fundraiser. Now you have the release of Barack Obama speaking at an event where he says that he believes in redistribution of wealth. I mean, I think that... Um, it's an interesting development in, in any presidential campaign, I suppose, when the candidates run against each other by releasing YouTube videos. I don't think that's ever happened before. But um, I know that the release of the Mitt Romney video has been touted as a, I mean, I've seen some of the hysterical comments, the smoking gun. You know, this is it for Romney. It's all over. And I think that in, if you put that into context and, and you take a look at the obvious and un, unabashed bias of the media this time around, even worse than in 2008, it doesn't matter what Mitt Romney does, what Mitt Romney says, what the campaign does, what goes out, anything associated with the name Mitt Romney is going to be attacked. It just doesn't matter. And so if it wasn't this, it would have been something else. And uh, I would argue that um, I, I don't think it's working for them. I mean, I, I don't think that the polls indicate that um, that Obama got any bump out of that kind of attack. You know, you had, of course, the editor of uh, of um, of uh, uh, David Korn from um, Mother Jones magazine who released the video saying that. You know, Obama should, I mean, Romney should get out of the race. Why don't they just take him out and have him executed? I mean, I'm sure they'd love to. It's just, it just isn't flying. Then, of course, you have um, 
Elizabeth Warren yapping along and throwing in her two cents here in Massachusetts. And uh, I think, once again, damaging her brand, if you will. She has an email that's just come out here. Deadbeats, it says. If you haven't seen Mitt Romney's video about 47% of Americans, I want you to watch it. Mitt Romney wrote off half the people in Massachusetts and half the people in America as deadbeats. Many are people who work their hearts out, play by the rules, and pay plenty of taxes. Well, I mean, first of all, the people that um, Mitt Romney were referring to were people who are not paying federal taxes. This is the kind of rhetoric that I think is damaging. I hope it's damaging to a fraud like Elizabeth Warren. I don't know. You know, even in Massachusetts, people don't cotton to that sort of thing. Obviously, Mitt Romney was talking about the same phenomena that's been talked about for the past couple of years, both left and right, by the way, both both Democrat and Republican, which is that there has been an unprecedented increase in Americans who are accepting some form of public assistance, and that apparently there's a very large percentage of the American population that is paying no income tax. It's just a fact, and it does have social ramifications, very serious ones. It is a social issue. It's a very big one. It's probably the biggest social issue that this country is confronting right now. Now, Mitt Romney is wrong to suggest that, you know, all of the people who are, who are not paying taxes or who are accepting public assistance are not going to support him. That's not right. I think that many of them will support him. Certainly veterans, I think, would support him. You know, and they deserve their public assistance. By the way, it's not public assistance. That is payment for their services rendered. You know, so, and I don't think Mitt Romney meant to include them. He made just a general statement about the general phenomena of an increase in in those who are accepting and those who are benefiting from and even living off of public assistance at some level. And it's not just people on welfare. It's people who you know, are getting public pensions and funded, publicly funded pensions and whatnot, um, and, and that includes veterans. It's just something that uh, is a public phenomenon. It is unprecedented in, this, in the last three years. Uh, the level has gone up to about 47%. And uh, I don't think it's a matter of being against them. It's a matter of being aware of the fact that um, it's something that has to be recognized and it has to be reined in. Um, you know, it's not sustainable. It is responsible for the, at least in a strictly economic sense, it's responsible for this huge deficit that we have now. The fact is that the federal government and state governments can't afford it, you know, without raising taxes even more on the 49 or the 53 percent of Americans who are paying taxes. You know, I mean, it's that simple. It is unsustainable. And I think that Mitt Romney is the kind of guy that could come in and and deal with it, even though he might not come across to some people as a pleasant person. I think he is. I don't think he. I think he's a fine person, but he can come across otherwise. Um, you know, he is someone who is going to at least address that issue, and it is an issue, and it's a real issue, one that has to be addressed. The New York Times did a very insulting column written by David Brooks, who is allegedly a conservative, uh, called Thurston Howell Romney. I don't know if people saw this. 
Uh, the left people on the left are just giddy over this. Well, first of all, the character Thurston Howell is a reference to a character in the old sitcom Gilligan's Island, which was popular in the 60s. And I'm not a connoisseur of Gilligan's Island, but I'm very familiar with Gilligan's Island. I remember watching it as a little kid and liking it. And uh, my impression of it back then and looking at it today was that the character Thurston Howell III, first of all, it was modeled after Franklin Roosevelt, the mannerisms and the, you know the, the the kind of the waspy air you know with the with a locked jaw, you know these guys talk like they've got a mouthful of marbles. Uh, oh, lovey, darling, be ginger, please, lovey, come here, lovey. You know it was kind of a a, play, a, a, a rather slightly derogatory satire of the old Yankee, the Eastern Seaboard Yankee, from from Massachusetts and from the from uh, the northeastern part of the country um, and he, those people are liberals I mean you know Thurston Howell was represented this kind of liberal limousine liberal type you know he wasn't conservative he was a classic limousine liberal he was amoral he was an internationalist he was uh, you know very much an elitist you know, sort of like the Rockefeller family. You know, these people are not conservatives. They were about as far to the left as any Republican could be. I think that probably the character in presidential politics that would be most akin to Thurston Howell III would have been uh, John Forbes Kerry of Massachusetts, right down to the way he speaks. Oh, this is John Kerry. Uh, you know, and also the fact that John Kerry is three times richer than Mitt Romney. John Kerry is the richest man in the history of the U.S. Congress. Um, in terms of real dollars, he's worth almost a billion dollars. Uh, and John Kerry, of course, was the Democratic nominee in 2004. I think Al Gore is one of those types that is typical of this kind of uh, Thurston Howell-like personality. Grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. His father made a ton of money from uh, you know, Occidental Petroleum, uh, and then after he was driven out of office by the voters, he became the CEO of a branch of Occidental Petroleum that was stripping the tops off of mountains and dumping toxic waste into Love Canal in New York. But yet, you know, uh, Al Gore is somebody who cares about, you know, the environment, of course, and he writes books about it. You know, that kind of hypocrisy. That's the Thurston Howell. Not Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, first of all, I mean, the Kennedy family are typical of, of a group that is trying to aspire to a Thurston Howell-type personality, although I don't think they ever quite got there because they're Irish Catholics. But other than that, I mean, if you take a look at the mannerisms of the Kennedys, you know, John F., Robert, Ted, all of them, they imitated this kind of Yankee persona, you know, that, that Thurston Howell made fun of, you know, the way they spoke, you know, ask not, you know, what your country can do for you. You know, that, that's not a Boston accent. That's a Yankee accent. I mean, this kind of stance, you know, and, and also with, with exceptions made for John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, certainly this is true, I think, of Ted, this classic left liberal Eastern Seaboard limousine style. 
of internationalism, you know, a moral approach to government. We shouldn't have our morals get in the way of public policy. Probably the most classic example of, of, a, of a Thurston Howell type figure and of an Eastern Seaboard liberal would have been Alger Hiss, you know, who of course turned out to be supporting the very fashionable Soviet Union in the 1930s and 40s while he was under Secretary of State and who worked very closely with the Roosevelt administration because he was one of these fellows, you know, who came from Harvard and who just was able to move very smoothly in these kind of elitist circles. And those circles are not conservative. So Mitt Romney, as a Mormon and as a Midwesterner, would not be welcome in those circles. But yet the New York Times can take a swipe. And of all papers, the New York Times itself, the old gray lady, you know, of Manhattan, they're the exemplar of this sort of Thurston Howell III outlook on the world, not Mitt Romney. You know, Mitt Romney, I will grant you, Mitt Romney is one of is sort of a liberalish Republican. I don't think he's as far to the left as as Nelson Rockefeller or as uh, you know the Rockefeller Republicans. I don't even think he's as far to the left as Richard Nixon who also aspired to that status. But Mitt Romney is certainly not a, uh, a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, not, not to the degree that I think um, many of us would hope for. But yet Mitt Romney, I think, is, and, and having met him many times, he's a man of integrity. Uh, we don't know exactly what Mitt Romney will do economically as president of the United States, but we have a pretty good idea of what Barack Obama will do because he said so. He said he wants to continue on the path he's been on and see it through. And what is that path? It's not been a good one. It's actually incorporated the worst aspects of George Bush. So I think when voters go to the polls this November, which is only about six or seven weeks away, they're going to ask themselves the very same. They're going to bring up. They're going to think about the issues that defeated. Frank Sargent, governor of Massachusetts back in the 1970s. And Frank Sargent, by the way, was a very much a an Eastern Seaboard limousine liberal, if there ever was one. But he was a very well-liked governor, and he's a good guy. You know, he came from the old school. You know, he was a, he was a very liberal Republican who was liked by both uh, Democrats and Republicans and who was very popular. But then all of a sudden, in 1975... When he was running for re-election and he was scheduled to win handily, he was suddenly and shockingly defeated in an upset uh, by this young, unknown upstart from Brookline named Michael Dukakis. And when the media asked Frank Sargent why he felt he lost, he said it was the price of hamburger. And that's what voters are going to ask themselves, I think, is certainly the undecideds are going to ask themselves when they go to the polls um, this uh, November, uh, you know, they're going to wonder about the price of hamburger. They're going to wonder about the price of gas, you know, the fact that gas prices continue to go up, and at this point it's over 5 bucks a gallon in some places, that hamburger is going up in price. Groceries are going up. Uh, the, you know, it's becoming more and more expensive, and the fact that Bernanke is turning on the printing press ain't going to make that any easier. And then, by the way, Romney came out against that. 
and that this is happening under Barack Obama's watch. And they're going to ask themselves, exactly what is Barack Obama going to do about this? What is he going to do in the next four years to make my dollar go farther? What's he going to do to make sure that uh, I can afford the, you know, to fill my gas tank so I could get to and from work or I can drive my kids around to their, to their soccer games or whatnot? What's he going to do to give me a sense of more of security so I can at least get a job? You know, we have the highest unemployment rate in this country since, the, since World War II. You know, I've had to take a crappy job because I lost my good job, and now I have to work more hours and earn less. What is Barack Obama's policy is going to do to help that? Not that the president can actually do anything literally, but he's going to be – he's asking me to elect him for four more years – what are his policies going to be that might improve that situation? And the answer is that Barack Obama has said he's going to continue on doing what he's done and see it through. And I think that people are going to scratch their heads and wonder, is that really going to help me? Did Barack Obama's $1 trillion stimulus package help me, or did it help just some government hack keep their job? Did uh, – you know, did his policies around the world make me feel safer as an American when I travel overseas, or are we more dangerous today? You know, is he appointing judges who who interpret the Constitution, or are they just making it up as they go? I think that Americans are going to say that they don't know if they can trust four more years of the same. And they're going to look at Mitt Romney and say, you know, I don't know much about him. I don't totally feel comfortable with him. I don't know if he's going to make any huge difference, but he can't be worse. He can't be worse. He was governor of Massachusetts, and he did preside over a pretty conservative government in the state. And, uh, you know, who knows? He probably surrounds himself with some good people that uh, aren't going to do a worse job. I think he'll do a great job, but I'm, I'm here putting myself in the shoes of your average undecided voter. I think that they're going to say that Barack Obama has not presented any particular compelling reason why I should vote for him for another term. And they're going to turn to Mitt Romney probably within 24 hours or 48 hours of that election. There's going to be a surge in favor of Mitt Romney, mainly because the undecideds remain undecided even now, about 8 to 10 percent. Anyway, I want to thank everyone for listening. That pretty much wraps things up for this afternoon. I shall return, God willing, tomorrow at noontime, Eastern Standard Time. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Check out my blog site, chuckmoorespeaks.com. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, stay tuned, of course, for Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan coming up with the Fairness Radio on Cyber Station USA Radio Network. And have a good afternoon, everybody. <laughs>